0: Reading is Jonah chapter 1, found on page 774 of the Church Bibles. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Morning, everyone, again want to ask you if you can use your imagination for a moment. Try to imagine that you are living several thousand years ago, and you are an Israelite. You are a Jew. And you, as a Jew, take pride in your ethnicity, in your calling, in your background, it, it defines you. It's 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 your identity. And if you're living out in the desert or the bush, well, what do you do? You go to a big campfire or a bonfire, right? And one night as you go, there's stacks of people gathering around, fires blazing. Some people are cooking pita bread on the side. Smells good. It's inviting. And you hear chatter, which is sort of not really discernible until you finally get up to the fire and you realize there's this old guy standing up and he's got pita bread in his hand, this old Jewish guy, everyone knows him, and he's talking about King Jeroboam. And you go, yeah, I didn't live during his time, but I've heard about this Jeroboam before. Yet wasn't Jeroboam, I remember my granddad, I remember Nan and Pop telling me about Jeroboam, he's the guy that, divided the nation of Israel from the north and the south after Solomon died. Yeah, that's right, I I know. And and then another guy interrupts and goes, which Jeroboam are you talking about? Oh, geez, it's always, you know, and there's Uncle Crazy, right? Maybe Uncle Crazy was at your Christmas gathering. Maybe you are Uncle Crazy. (laughs) And... He goes, I'm talking not about that Jeroboam, but the other one. And you know, oh, hold on. The other Jeroboam came in the 8th century. Yeah, that Jeroboam, though he was a pretty wicked guy, actually led our nation, economically speaking. He, he expanded our territory. Right? He, like, he, he didn't just have this little nation here, but he we became a larger nation. And... Our nation actually prospered during his reign, during this second Jeroboam guy that came like hundreds of years later. But yeah, that's right. I I know who he's talking about. And then he says, and there was a prophet during the reign of this second Jeroboam. And this prophet went to a wicked place. And then all of a sudden everyone goes, we know what prophet you're talking about. And he says, because they were the Assyrians. And he's this, you know, he's the crazy uncle, right? And all the kids, the Assyrians. And they begin to hide and pull up the blankets. And this guy's still blowing smoke because now the smoke is coming towards him. You know what? The smoke follows you at a bonfire, campfire, right? And he's blowing it away and he says, this prophet rose up and went all the way to another nation to tell them about Yahweh. Now everybody knows by this point who he's talking about. Look at 2 Kings, here up on the screen, 2 Kings 14.25. He restored the border of Israel, talking about this second Jeroboam, from Label Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the Lord of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant, who? Jonah, Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath Hepher. Now, these Israelites sitting around a campfire would have known about Jonah. Out of a show of hands, besides Ralph just reading it five seconds ago, how many of you, out of a show of hands, have heard this book Jonah before? Yeah. It's a quite common book. People usually say, oh, what a cute children's story about a fish. (laughs) Believe it or not, it might be used in veggie tales and, and other things. Jonah is all about God. It is also more than the story of a prophet who ran away from God, it's the story of the grace of God that overcomes Jonah's stubborn rebellion. And not only Jonah's, but our rebellion. Because by our nature, we are not seekers of God, but fugitives from Him. That propensity to flee from God does not end in our conversion. And yet, even in our disobedience, God pursues us in His grace. So today, I want to talk about disobedience and grace. And so, what we're going to do for our time together this morning is do a little bit of the who and the what and the why of the book of Jonah, because we're just beginning this series this morning. And if you're parachute dropping into a book, it's important to know some context, right? And then I want us to ask this question what can we expect when we say no to God? What can we expect? Because it's like I said, Jonah is is more than a story of a prophet who ran away from God. It's the story of the grace of God that overcomes Jonah's stubborn rebellion. So disobedience and grace. And what can we expect when we say no to God? And I want, I was thinking about this and I was praying about this. I actually woke up at two in the morning last night and I began just praying for you guys. I didn't pray all the way through to now. Otherwise, I'd look like a wide-eyed prophet. But I was thinking, within Protestant evangelicalism, there tends to be a propensity that grace is preached, which is good, but insofar as it lightens the idea that you can be flippant about your obedience to God. Do you know what I mean by that? Salvation is free by grace alone, through Christ alone. Yes, true. But then, unfortunately, sort of what, then people almost begin to bathe so much in that grace that be, they become functional antinomians. You're like, what is an antinomian? Namas means law, right, Dan, in Greek. So you're anti-law. You live like a non-Christian, but you fall back onto, well, God is gracious and he's gonna forgive me anyways because God knows my heart. So I can live in sin, but at the end of the day, it's okay because God loves us, and that's what I hear at church all the time, and I can just continue to live my life of sin. And at the end of the day, God is loving and he's gracious and, and I'm, I'm all good. And people will use this phrase. They'll say this, well, God knows my heart. God knows my heart. Well, what does that mean? I mean, the Bible says that your, our heart, my heart, your heart, right? Right? is deceitfully wicked. That our righteousness is actually like a filthy rag in God's sight. So I think what people mean by that is, I have good intentions. When they say, oh yeah, look, God knows my heart. I think what they mean by that is, I have good intentions to obey God. I'm just not going to for this season in my life. So what can you expect if that's you? Look, we all sin. But do you understand the difference? I'm talking about high-handed disobedience. You know it's wrong and you say, stuff it, I'm going to do it anyways. Do, do, do you see the difference? But what can, if that's your attitude and, and, you're, and you're here this morning and that's, that's sort of your life, what can you expect when you say no to God and as it were, book a ticket for Tarshish? So that's what I don't want to talk about. And I, and I hope it brings some gravity to this idea of following God and loving him and, and adoring him and, and wanting to know him and be obedient to him. That, that's really my prayer. Is that, and we'd see Jonah and really we'd almost see a reflection of ourselves in areas that we need to stop fleeing, stop running from God and surrender to him. So that said, let's, let's pray. Father, I pray that as our Bibles are opened, you would be our teacher this morning. Lord, we do not have the ability to understand or apply what is taught without your divine enabling. So please, Holy Spirit, put aside all distractions and may we hear from you this morning through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so before we unpack this text I think it's helpful to know a little bit of context of the book of Jonah. Um, if you have a sermon helper, it says Jonah's story. So is this event, is this historical? Is this just made up? Who wrote it? You know, things like that. Uh, Jonah is almost entirely what's called historical narrative, written in the 8th century BC. If you have Spotify or iTunes, you'll notice that there's different genres that you can choose from, right, it might be hip-hop or rock, reggae, maybe country, Ooh. right? The, there are ver- Sorry, Nicole. There are various musical genres broken down into their related categories. And it's the same with the Bible. It's the same with the Bible. There's, there's law, there's prophecy, there's epistle, there's poetry. And there's narrative, and and Jonah falls into the category, though there is some poetry in chapter two, we'll see next week, but Jonah is mainly historical narrative. But what I aspire to do, though, is not just tell you the history and the story that existed, but what I hope to do is read this, giving us a Christian reading of Jonah. Does that make sense? Since Christ is the focal point of salvation, and because today we read the books of the Bible after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want to read Jonah through what's called a Christocentric lens. Christ is the focus. It's imperative that we do this. We do want to be consistent with what the book of Jonah is saying, but we're not left with just the book of Jonah. Does that make sense? Like, we're not just living in a day before Jesus came and all we have is the book of Jonah. We have. You're, you're able to read Scripture backwards, as it were, in light of the New Testament, look backwards onto the Old Testament. But what else about this little, <coughs> precarious little book? Jonah is compressed in what's called the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets, which focuses not on value, but on Volume. Does that make sense? It has more to do with the size. Like, for instance, the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters, or the book of Jonah only has four. If if you sat down to read the book of Isaiah, it would take you a major long time. It's a major prophet. Got it? Pretty cheesy. But Jonah is a minor prophet. The, The book makes no direct claim who authored it. Some argue that Jonah might have wrote it, because of the firsthand accounts of these unusual events, but it also refers to Jonah in the third person. So we're not exactly sure who wrote the book of Jonah, to be honest. If that's said, though, can we take this literally? Is this just a fable? Well, no, Jesus didn't think it was a fable. Jesus says in Luke 11, just as the prophet Jonah was in the belly of a fish three days and three nights so the Son of Man, referring to his death and resurrection— we be in the heart of the earth. Jesus didn't think it was a made-up story. And we'll talk actually more about that next week, about this idea of can we trust it? Is it historical or not? But I want to actually jump into the book now. So if you have your Bible sitting there, the book of Jonah, it's, it's an incredible book. Um, gosh, I think April was reading it this morning and she goes, this, just sort, this book just almost comes out of nowhere. Do you, know, you notice that? Like, <laughs> it's, it, it's just, yeah. Like, what is this about? It's just these nice four chapters. Now, notice that the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Now, now the opening words of any book are crucial, right? Any book, the opening chapter, first few sentences are crucial. Notice the word of the Lord. You see that? We're not sure if this is a vision or a dream or a voice, but the important thing is that God has the first and the last word in this book. Remember, I said this is all a book about God and the grace of God. Jonah himself means dove. When we just looked at 2 Kings, he's a prophet, right? Came from a town near Nazareth called Gath Helper. He prophesied to the northern uh, Tribes of Israel during the reign of, as I said, King Jeroboam. But look at this wording here. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise. Arise. This word is important because he's essentially arresting Jonah in the midst of his life and commanding him to get up and go this direction. But why Nineveh? We got it. God is the first and the last word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God's arresting Jonah, yeah, 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 but why, why Nineveh? It's interesting, do you notice what God says about Nineveh? Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. You see that? It wasn't a dag city, it was actually a great city. This is actually, this city was probably, honestly, one of the greatest architectural cities of the day. But this is a wicked city. Notice what he says here? The great city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Similar to the days of the flood, right? When God looked on the earth and saw that it was corrupt, Nineveh was so sinful that the holy justice of God had to act upon it. Has come up before me, kind of like burnt toast permeates a nasty smell throughout a house. The wickedness has arisen, but why? Well, we know this much about Nineveh. Another prophet who lived during the time of Jonah, Nahum, this is. Listen what he says. He says this about the city, about Nineveh. In Nahum chapter three, verse one through five, woe to the bloody city. He's not cussing there, by the way. He's literally saying like, woe to the bloody city all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glaring spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. This is very violent. Do you catch that? It's interesting, and you can read later in Nahum chapter 3 more about it, but when Jonah comes to Nineveh, And when the Ninevites repent, one of the things the king says is he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Did you hear that? The violence. It's a very violent place with brutal people. But where was this spot? Well, it was about almost... A 1,000 kilometers northeast of Israel, of Jerusalem. But again, this city was one of the great architectural cities of the ancient world. This this was like a powerhouse. And though it was floating economically, it's sinking morally. And Jonah doesn't want to go there. Verse 3, see it? But Jonah rose to to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on aboard to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. It's interesting. If a thousand kilometers northeast, if you look at it on the map today, that's Iraq, and Tarshish was probably somewhere in Spain. Now, I know maybe geography for a lot of people is like, I I don't know where that is. But if you imagine on a map, think how far Spain is. Think how far Iraq is. Super far, especially back then. You couldn't just hop on a plane. And so what's Jonah doing? He's going the complete opposite direction. Be like if I said, hey, I need you to go to, you know, I need you to get down to Victoria because the fires are going on and they're, they're blazing. Dan, can you get down there? Can you help them? And Dan says, yeah, no worries. And he gets in a ute and books it up to Queensland. It's like it's, or goes to Darwin or wherever. Like it's complete opposite direction. It's interesting there. Do you notice he's attempting to flee from the presence of the Lord? It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Why did he do that? I mean, and why is he going the opposite direction? Could it be that he's a typical man and he doesn't listen well enough, <laughs> right? And he doesn't hear details, and so he goes, "Oh, I know. You said Tarsus. You, I, you. Did you mean Nineveh? Oh man, I, you know, I should have been listening better, God." No, it's not, that's, that's not his problem, right? The, the message came with clarity, arise, go where? To Nineveh. And it came with a task, didn't it? And call out against it. Jonah didn't misunderstand God. And listen, it's been said that our problem in obeying God is not that we do not understand what he is saying, but that we actually do. Not that you don't understand what God's saying. It's that you do and you don't want to obey. Why did Jonah try to flee from the presence of God? Well, I'll give it away. Here's your spoiler. Chapter 4, verse 2. You can look there. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding and steadfast. What a terrible thing. What a terrible thing, right? That that God would be like that. But that's what Jonah does. He hated the Ninevites. He wanted the Ninevites destroyed, wiped out, obliterated. Nineveh was the capital city of the enemy, the Assyrians, the nation that warred against Israel. Israelites wanted them destroyed. And if Jonah comes back and there's quote-unquote revival that happens, mass repentance in Assyria, and Jonah comes back into town, do you think they're going to be like, yeah, it's like our Billy Graham, baby? This guy's awesome. it would be like, Look at the traitor who fortified our enemies. Basically, well, these were the guys that we wanted to see wiped out, and now they're not going to get wiped out. Jonah, you're not the faithful prophet; you're the traitor prophet. And so, what does he do? He flees. It's interesting, though, how he goes to another nation. Another excuse me, another nation. Um, This is the only Old Testament passage of a prophet sent to the pagans, heathens, or Gentiles. Prophets were always sent to their own chosen Israelites. There might be letters, oracles, visions about, like Ezekiel and others, about other nations being destroyed, but this prophet actually physically goes and prophesies to a pagan outside nation, outside of Israel. It was an unusual event for, for Jewish prophets to be called upon to leave their own people and go to a pagan nation. Even the apostle Peter in the book of Acts, he's still struggling with this. Like after the time of Jesus, the guy who spent three and a half years with Jesus, when he's called to go to Cornelius' house, he's like, no, 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 I'm not doing it. So So you can get, that's like Peter, right? Imagine how Jonah feels. Now look at verse three again. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. What a scene. What thoughts must have flashed through Jonah's mind at this port in Joppa? You know, maybe he's thinking, God understands. He's let me off the hook. You know, certain authors and even novels have guessed what this scene was like or what was going through Jonah's head. If you read Moby Dick, have any of you read Moby Dick before? There's actually a scene with, um, it, it's really interesting, with Father Mapple, and he's in Whaler's Chapel, and he's recounting the story of Jonah. Uh, another um, theologian, a Scottish bloke, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, Listen how, uh, it's, it's conjecture, but it's really, I love the way he describes what internally is going on in Jonah's mind. Because we sort of read it and go, yeah, 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 yeah. And then there's a ship, and then they throw him off the ship, and then a fish goes, Groop. keep reading. And then there's weird poetry that I don't know how to read. And then the Ninevites turn around, and the end. But this is a real guy. A- and certainly he's not just going, oh, yeah, Whatever. He might even say that, but mm, I, I guarantee you there's some psychological turmoil going on in this guy's head. He's not just any dude, too. He's a prophet, clearly disobeying God. So listen to what Sinclair Ferguson says. We can picture this little prophet, breathless, counting out the coins for his ill-fated Mediterranean cruise. The adrenaline flowing as at last the ship weighs anchor and the port of Joppa disappears over the horizon. We can see him going below deck as the stars sparkle in the sky. He rolls over on his mat that night, exhausted with nervous tension, yet perhaps with an overwhelming sense of relief that the great decision has been taken. He has paid the fare. Perhaps it took his life savings... But his last thought before sleep is, it was worth it. So here is Jonah fleeing from God's call on a ship. You know, friend, the fact is, when you want to flee and run away from God, the devil will always provide, he'll shout your transportation. What are you running from? What clear thing has God called you to in scripture that you're disobeying? You can run, but you can't hide. It's interesting in verse four, the wording here, how how many of you are familiar with this story? King David is playing a harp one day, strumming his harp, and Saul, who's oppressed by a demon, takes a spear, this is 1 Samuel 18, takes a spear and hocks it at David. And two different times. So David's playing his spear. Right, just keeps playing. Saul hurls his spear. Jonah disobeys, and what happens? The Lord hurls a storm. You see that word there? Same word. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Because Jonah said no to God, here comes a storm. And friend, listen carefully. What can you expect when you say no to God? Expect a storm. Expect a storm. God disciplines his own children, not the devil's. God swats, spanks his own not is illegitimate, not children that aren't his. By faith in Jesus Christ, you can become a child of God. We are not all children of God by birth. We have to be reborn to be a child of God. We're children of God in the sense that we are created in his image, but we are not spiritually children until the day that we step over the line and commit our lives to Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. If you're at a playground, or at the store, or Kohl's or Woolies or wherever, and you see a kid throwing an absolute conniption fit at their parents, "Rah rah, rah I hate you!" Rah, screaming. I watch that, and sometimes my kids look at it, and I look at this kid, and I think. I know what you need, kid. And I'm just the guy to give it to you, too. (laughs) Now, if I spanked this kid, what would happen? I would be in, don't worry, I'm not going to. But if I did, if I actually took the initiative and disciplined this kid, I would be arrested, likely, because it's not my kid. And I have no right to, e- even whatever that might even look like, it doesn't have to necessarily even be a swat. But I don't have any right to even infringe upon and, and discipline this kid. It's not, it's not my kid. kid. Kid means sort of by, by blood, it's, it's nothing to me. I mean, I value the kid, but it's not, does that make sense? Listen to this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 and, and make this connection. Listen. And have you forgotten But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God says, I don't swat the devil's kids, I swat my own. If you're running away from God, friend, You can expect a storm. But listen, he sends the storm not to torture us, but to bring us back on track. And such is how it's so akin to when one of my children disobey and I bring some kind of discipline on them, the point is not to torture them, but to restore them, to bring them back to righteousness. That is what we see in the book of Jonah and that, friend, is the same God that we serve. If you have high-handed disobedience, you can expect a storm. Maybe you're in one now. Or if not, it might look like the stars are sparkling each night, but hold on because one might be coming. Let's look at verse four again. But the Lord hurled A great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship, this is funny language, the ship threatened to break up. I I can't help but imagine you're in the ship, and then all of a sudden the ship says, I'm going to break up. If you don't get me out of this storm, that's it, I'm going to break up. Ship's becoming a nervous wreck, get it? So, I know. I know. But look what's happening. The mariners are afraid, right? As much as we're, I'm being cheeky. The mariners are afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. I mean, this much have been a raging storm. These mariners, these, these, were, these were dudes who sailed the seas, right? So they're used to storms. And they know they're in trouble. Hence the reason they're jettisoning the cargo. They're throwing it out, right? And and they're crying out to these different gods, these polytheistic gods, right? We pray to the God of the sun or the god of the rain or the god of the storm or God. Help, help. Nothing's happening. There's one passenger who wasn't panicked. He's not even <laughs> Exactly. He's asleep. He's totally he's completely impervious to the storm. L- l- let's keep reading. But Jonah had gone down into the uh, inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise. That must have sounded familiar. familiar. Arise. Who said that? It's almost like you wonder if he's having a nightmare about his, and then arise, go to him, arise. And then someone shaking you, and you you ever have like, you're going from sleep to then reality, and it's, it's almost like, you're half sleeping and you can hear someone saying, having a conversation. And as you wake up, you're realizing you were half asleep. Does that make sense? And it's like, arise, arise, arise. Yes, no, 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 no. And then it's the captain in your face screaming, wake up, man. What are you doing? We're going to die. Can't you see? Even these pagan mariners believed the world somehow was controlled by the gods. I mean, when adversity comes, they still have a strong view of providence, even if it's a misguided, poor theological one. Verse 7. Notice here. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? The crew's hammering him with questions. Look at his response in verse 9. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Catch this. Children, listen to this. The God of heaven who made The sea, what? What's? Where are they, kids? Right now, they are on what? The sea. Duh. You know, you just like (laughs) it's like if you're. I, I would. I would just. I would have slapped Jonah at that point. You know, it's like wait a hold on a second. You worship the God who made the sea, who split the Red Sea. God who's in control of this, and you're running from that God. But they knew that, right? He said to him, I'm the God, notice verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. It's a good word. Dan probably likes that. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know, catch this, this is our second point, for I know it is because of me this great tempest has come upon you. What do we expect when we say no to God? Expect a storm, but listen, expect to put others in danger. Expect to put others in danger. Disobedience is never just a private matter. Your defiance of God can affect your family, friends, spouse, even a city. When David, King David, we talked about him earlier with the harp, saw a woman bathing, he ordered her, who was someone else's wife, he ordered her to come up, he slept with her, he had the dude, the husband, killed. A lot of us know this story, he thought, all good, I got away with it, literally rape and murder, it's all good. And then Nathan approaches him, the prophet, and says, I don't think so. But then listen, listen to this, listen to how his his sin has now affected other people. Nathan says this in 2 Samuel 12, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. His own son, actually. And I will take your wives because before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. Which had happened. What Jonah should have said when the storm struck was, turn this ship around now. But he doesn't. His sin, his disobedience, is affecting others. Listen, I'm not... <sighs> I'm not meaning this to just bash you over the head, but if you are a father, God has called you to be the spiritual leader of your family. And if you are apathetic and indifferent and lazy in your devotion to God and leading your family, it's going to affect your kids. It's not to guilt trip you. It's just a reality. You ever hear the phrase more is caught than taught? Well, the same thing as if you're a mother or a grandmother. Your kids are going to look at your life. What kind of Christianity they're going to see. Your sin can affect other people. You might feel just I'm cranky today. I'm cranky. So instead of praying and asking God to help you and crucify that sin, you're just snapping on your co-workers or your wife or your husband or whatever. It can affect other people. Have you you felt this? Yeah. Yeah. We can expect a storm and we can expect to put others in danger. I mean, at the same time, though, I will say this. These sailors aren't innocent bystanders, right? They're idolaters. And so, They, like everyone else, it qualifies them for God's wrath. But but notice, though, in verse 11, Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And these guys, you've got to hand it to them. At least they're, no way, I'm not going to murder you, man. But nevertheless, right, so the men uh, rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, Amazing. It, it's absolutely amazing. Jonah thinks, though, at this point, he's got his wish. He's dead. Because as the sea calms down, in between that interim period, if you look at chapter 2, verse 5, notice he thinks he's a goner. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. He thinks, that's it, I'm dead, and then he's goll- golloped up. Incredible. So, what can we expect when we say no to God? Expect a storm, expect to put others in danger, and expect a fish. I'll explain. Not literally. But when you're living in disobedience and God provides a fish, it can be a very uncomfortable place that's smelly, wet, scary, and dark. Jonah's fish was a sign of God's grace. This fish wasn't sent to punish Jonah, but to save him from drowning. And his time in the fish provided the right context for him to learn something about God and himself. You yeah, it's interesting, if Jonah had said, there he is in the fish, tight quarters, and he said, I still ain't going to Nineveh. I reckon the fish slowly would have digested the little guy. We have no more Jonah. But you see, there's, and we're going to look jump into this next week, at least at this moment, there's an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and God's provision for him, and that salvation belongs to the Lord. But here's what's interesting. You can also expect, when you say no to God, the same assignment. I love this part. Ready? Go to chapter 3. So, actually chapter 2, verse 10. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. There's Jonah. Pulls all the fish guts off of him, takes a shower, you know. (laughs) Glad that's over. Jonah. Again? What's your assignment now? Go to Nineveh, like I told you. God's not going to alter his will, what he's written down in his word, to accommodate you. God's not gonna sort of look at the sin that you want and say, oh, that's cool. Look, you can have your cake and eat it too. God's not gonna learn to walk with you. You're called to learn to walk with him. And when we say no to God, what we do, friends, we, we do, we, we book a ticket for Tarshish. You see, every day, You and I are saying no and running from God. That's what sin is, fleeing from God. The only way we come back is God pursuing us, not our own pursuit of him. Jonah reminds Christians of the extent to which God pursues us in our rebellion and changes our hearts to honor and to serve him because he is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So where are you at? Where are you at? What what are you fleeing from at the moment? Is there an area of your life that you just refuse to surrender? I pray that you can feel the weight of this. I almost like it's almost like a in a sense, because this is this is applies to me too. It's almost like the, the flavor of chapter one almost feels like a warning shot. Like God, can, God is still going to pursue Jonah and be gracious, but it's almost like shooting a flare up in the air and say, if you're going to be high-handed and be disobedient, you can expect these things to happen in your life. But the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If you're fleeing, if you're fleeing right now, friend, chuck a yui. Come back to Christ. Don't let The enemy, as it were, think that your identity is this sin. It's not your identity. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. A new creation. Don't allow sin to drag you down to the bottom of the sea, as it were. Call out to God. He's gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. We see that most of all on the cross, don't we? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, again that we can reflect on these truths that are relevant thousands of years later. Help us, Lord, to not be flippant in our obedience to you, to somehow justify it in our minds. Lord, it's so easy for us to just rationalize sin oh I'm only going to do it once or somehow we, we rationalize sin Lord that, that you're okay with it or that you understand or that you know that ultimately we're not really meaning to do what we're doing but Lord that is, that is just delusional so Lord would you confront us even now I pray Lord that as we take the next few seconds that you'd remind us of an area of our life that we need to surrender to you So Lord, help us now to think about our life and to reflect on an area that we are not surrendering to you. And Lord, we do pray that we would not be guilt-ridden. We know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But Lord, help us to not flee from you, but flee from sin and flee towards you, embracing you because you are more precious and valuable than any fleeting sin this world offers. So may this week, Lord, may our lives be marked by fleeing to you and, f- and fleeing from sin. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.